0: And welcome to Talk of the Hound, a new podcast by Theater Hound. Theater Hound is a unique new theatre website launching this year which looks at the art and business of theatre from a multitude of angles. I'm your host, Wes Braver, and today my guest is Mark Wendland, one of New York's most sought-after set designers. He's worked on almost a dozen Broadway shows, including Next to Normal, If Then, and Six Degrees of Separation. Our conversation today explores a bit of his overall philosophy on design and a glimpse into some of his recent projects and shows he's working on currently. So I'm I'm curious just to begin with where uh, where you got started in this line of work how you found your way into it there aren't third grade art classes about set design so you must have
1: oh it's that found same way no it's it. that old story of you know be careful what high school you thinks might be cool <laughs> because you know old man you ends up living that life and when I was in high school I had a very very uh, Great. There was a great art department at my high school, and I took four. You know, from freshman year, I took four years of art classes, and um, each teacher was really interesting and had something. And I, you know, I really liked them. And one year, I guess it was sophomore year, the woman who was the teacher said to me, and I happened to meet uh, a, a girl and a boy in the class who we became really good friends, but. Uh, she said to the three of us, you know what, I I bet the three of you would find it really interesting to work in the theater department. They're looking for people to work on sets. Yeah. So it was a sophomore. (laughs) Like, I blame her. Yeah. Um, But, you know, being like sort of an awkward teen, you know, with bad social skills and, (laughs) you know, I was gay, but I didn't know what gay was Uh and all of this. It was like, I found like a little niche Mm -hmm. in this gigantic, you know, it was like, 3,000 kids in the school. So I found this little area that I fit in. Um, and I always knew I wanted to, even as like a little tiny boy, I knew I wanted to do something in the arts, but you know, what you get exposed to is what you get exposed to. And Mm -hmm. for some reason I got exposed to theater and I just really latched onto it. And then my two friends who were in the art class, they ended up taking, you know, Two more years of art classes with me, but we did shows together and yeah. it was really fun. And So you started designing it
0: during high yeah, school? Yeah, the, or
1: the or... head of the, th- the um, technical aspect of the theater department was really open to figuring out how to incorporate um, students into the design process. Um, so like the first thing, I, I still have it actually, you know, in 1970, whatever, is the act drop to um Thornton Wilder's The Matchmaker um you know and I don't know how I've I i do not know how I knew to do research but I found you know Victorian oleo drops and I designed this ornate like Victorian thing and we painted it after school you know every and we had to stretch it out in the it was actually the lobby of the auditorium that was the only place you could paint a Mm -hmm. drop Mm
0: mm-hmm Oh, I remember that well. (laughs) Well, I I acted in things, so I was just, you know, came in for the weekends to help Uh and, you know, try not to horribly ruin whatever the smart people like yourself were doing to the the set designs.
1: Um, It's so so funny, though, but um, years and years ago when my mom died, it was the last time I was in that. It was the suburbs. This is like the suburbs of Chicago. And I I drove past this, and I was like, I've just got to look in that window of that lobby of that auditorium. And it, I mean, I was my full height that I am now then, but it really seemed small. I was like, oh my God, like painting that drop seemed gigantic to me. And I was like, oh, I guess it wasn't it's that big. It's yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <That's> so funny. <laughs> but you were allowed some level of creative freedom yourself to go ahead and design that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember, you know, like for big things, I remember like the teachers had ownership of certain things and didn't, I remember we did a production of camelot where that he just really had an idea of what he wanted to do but then within it there were like little scenes like within his big and I remember him handing out to different students like why don't you come up with an idea for this scene Mm -hmm. so yeah that's how Mm -hmm. we
0: got started so in high school did you know like by that time were you like oh this is this is this or did it take longer college or whatever
1: no I, I went to undergrad to study theater yeah. based on my experiences in high school. Yeah. And I, and you know, actually I went to university of Illinois for a year because just mostly because I knew other kids who did that theater program, you know, uh, uh, students who had graduated from high school mm-hmm. a year or two ahead of me and they loved it so much. I transferred after a year cause I did. I just, I don't know. It didn't feel rigorous enough to me. It felt very, um, like I wanted more of a conservatory program, but when mm-hmm. I, left high school I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. But after a year of not having that and so I went to then I did 4 years at Carnegie Mellon which yeah. was you know, you're basically right chained to either a drafting table or yeah. you know, a paintbrush or I mean it was it's very intensive program and very focused on Productions, yeah. you know, mounting productions. Yeah, it's interesting. I think guidance counselors don't know how to say, "Oh, maybe you'd be a
0: great set designer." Yeah, yeah. No, the I theater. mean, they're, they're, you know, it was they funny.
1: Like... I, I do remember my high school guidance counselor, who I think had a drinking problem, <laughs> because she really was. She had no idea, who and she will really guide had guidance,
0: and counselors? she had no
1: interest in research. Like, she didn't even really know how to direct me sure, to research sure. it. Um, so that's sort of why I had that little hiccup of starting and then starting again. Well, thank God you found your way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Huh. So what was the first thing you got to fully design for?
1: I'm trying to think when I first got out of school, I know I I used to be a costume and set designer. Oh, huh. And I did that. I did the two for many, many years. Um, and I think my first professional job out of school was doing something for the Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh. I did something for the Pittsburgh Ballet, which was like these hand painted, costumes mm-hmm. and I'd like painted then it was like in the summer it was like a summer thing and I was staying yeah and that's so it I think that was my huh
0: and you did both for a while were you like into costumes or did you know I want to do set but these people are, on, the, are hiring one person the program at
1: Carnegie Mellon taught both and I just like that European model that you know you are the designer of the production mm-hmm. um, and I like designing costumes I got out of it I did it for many years in New York. I got out of it because the way uh, Off-Broadway is set up, most theaters really rely on the costume designer to also be the costume shop. You know, there isn't a lot of... You just don't get a lot of help. Yeah. Um, And because of that, it made it hard to do everything you needed to do as a set designer And then everything you needed to do as the costume designer. And when you're starting out, like, you know, in the kind of off-Broadway level, I think a lot of young costume designers just have the stamina to do it all. Yeah. And I just, after a while, I lost the stamina to like really, really, really keep doing both. I just realized it was too exhausting.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And I remember this one day, I used to live in an apartment on 28th Street and 7th Avenue. And... My kitchen had this window that looked out onto 28th Street. And I remember looking down in the street and seeing William Ivy Long literally with three giant shopping bags in each hand, like stumped over like Willie Loman, like trudging down 28th (laughs) Street. And I really was like, oh, it doesn't get better. Like, you know, even if you're William Ivy Long, like, you know, you're going to the notions section of, you know, the garment district and getting... Six giant shopping bags of crap that you have to bring to yeah. some shop, and i was, I don't know, I just was like i had i felt like I had to make a choice, and someday I'd like to do it again uh on a project where there's you know ample time and money and... it really to me everything <laughs> all comes down to how much uh assistant funds there are because there's a lot of stuff that you can um delegate if you just have the dedicated person the right to people. delegate yeah, to, yeah. yeah.
0: Mark recently designed the set for the world premiere of a play called *The Pain of My Belligerence by Hallie Pfeiffer. It was directed by Trip Coleman and went up at Playwrights Horizons earlier this spring. How early did you get started working on that? Was the did you get a full draft
1: first, or I think I read it well in it. I can't. I mean, I don't think it was a whole year ahead, but it was maybe nine months ahead or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was as soon as it got its slot. Right. When they programmed it, playwrights you read it, I think I yeah. I got a copy right away. So I was able to kind of live with it and let it percolate for a while before I had to like really sit down and talk yeah. about it.
0: Yeah. So this this play, just for our listeners, features this like remarkable wooden set and there's it's like a sort of triptych of a play in that it's three different time periods and three long scenes uh that make up this like what is it, 70, 90 minute play or something mm-hmm. like that. Um and uh, it's all made out of wood. I'm sure you can tell us more about the uh, the specifics about w- what kind of wood and stuff, but it sort of all uses this same element and finds a, a different way. One is a restaurant, one's a bedroom, and then one is uh, this nice big
1: apartment. Yeah, sort of a glamorous penthouse apartment. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, ki- what kind of wood is it? I don't remember. <laughs> cheap. I think it <laughs> the was cheap, like the, the, cheap the cheapest kind. wood we could find. I, I, I think it was just pine, yeah. regular, like clear-cut pine. Yeah, yeah. Well it looks
0: it looks like the the guy who owns the restaurant in the first scene that we're supposed to be in is really talking it up. So it felt uh, the set felt like it was uh, almost an extension of his character at least in that first uh-huh. scene of the opulence and
1: or the the sort of bravado well, that he's trying nice to show off. Well that's nice of you to say because it th- that was the dream what my <laughs> nervousness a little bit about the design is because really there's nothing representational in the design there's some a few hand props that kind of you know need to be there because the actors need to handle stuff to tell the story did you but, do props for this as well yeah you always you know yeah. sort of go through and hand off some research about what you think especially for a play like this where the set itself is not very narrative the props do, you know do a big job but because a lot of what uh you know the the first uh, scene in the restaurant is basically a first date. It's a couple that meet professionally. And then he asks the, the woman out and he, it's his restaurant. So he talks a lot about his restaurant. And what I hoped would happen is in the abstraction, his you know, like in Shakespeare, you don't need to visually conjure everything that Shakespearean characters talk about Mm -hmm. because they're talking about it. Mm -hmm. So they're painting the picture with words of what you're supposed to be seeing. And I think with Shakespeare, audiences are used to that. Um, Sometimes with contemporary plays, I always get nervous that it takes the audience a little bit of time to get used to the contemporary language. In an abstract setting. So when he was describing his restaurant, we said it in an abstract setting and it, it wasn't so abstract that you couldn't imagine these wooden slats. Right. And this, you know, slatted bench that they're mm-hmm. sitting could have been real, but really because it was this slatted environment looking through to what is essentially the rest of the theater. It really was in a theatrical context, so I'm glad to hear that you imbued it. Your mind worked ahead with the language to kind of imbue the environment with what the playwright was trying
0: to conjure with the words. But I'm sure you're using that, too. You see in the text, because he describes physically what's going on. He's telling a story about how he got the marble for the restaurant, if I recall Mm -hmm. correctly, or something like that. So even if you didn't put any marble in the set, I I think what you're saying about the Shakespearean thing is definitely
1: happening there. I've just done some shows that are abstract where I've had some critics and audience members be like, oh, it was so abstract, and and that pushed them away from the experience. Um, But I always like it when the language does the work and the visuals step back a little because I feel like it makes the audience brain connect in a different way and it makes the audience a little bit more of an active player in the event, if they're having to, like, be uh, Miss Marple a little bit and put Mm -hmm. clues together. And whereas I think if you just... That thing, it just always cracks me up when this happens, but, you know, that that sensation when you go to the theater and there's an act curtain down, you know, and you don't know what it's going to be, and then the curtain goes up at the top of the show and there's, like, a 100% realistic room sitting there Mm -hmm. and the audience claps... Like that phenomenon to me, (laughs) I have to come up with some fantastic, maybe there is a name for what is going on in an audience's head when that happens. But to me, it's that kind of soul deadening thing of like a room that I recognize. Yay, I'm not being challenged. Like to me, that's like, well, then why did you go to the theater? You know, like I like I, I prefer it when you are challenged a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you would, you would prefer... Well, I'm sure you would prefer No
1: Act Curtain. Oh, I mean, depending on the play. Yeah, don't knock an, an Act Curtain, <laughs> but I think it's... There's some plays that really, really need that 100% realistic set, mm-hmm. but I'm more interested in the kinds of plays that can live in a world where you're using your imagination. And I think Hallie's writing is really fascinating because it, for a cursory read of... I've worked on three of her shows now, um, and when you do a cursory read, she's writing in a really contemporary idiom about t- topics that are like off of the you know, newspaper. It's it's uh, they're very immediate. And now and there is a world where you might think. Uh, like, like scene two of Pain of My Belligerence takes place in um, the main character, the woman's bedroom. And, you know, it's there's a lot. You could tell about that person if you 100% realized a a realistic box set, Um, you know, and like what's on her dresser, what's on her nightstand, how expensive is the furniture she has in there? What kind of art does she have on the wall? Um, I think there is some textual reference to her living on uh, like in a one bedroom on the Upper West Side. So it's like, you know, that... Specific type of apartment is so iconic. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot you could have communicated. We chose to do exactly the opposite, which is again, we just sort of put it in this very dark nighttime setting, you know, as if there's just a shaft of light coming in through her bedroom door, like shining on the bed. We made it very isolated. And again, it's, it's, there's a ceiling and there's walls, but it's, it's not. No, it doesn't that apartment would not have yeah. wooden slats for right. the ceiling and walls. Right, right. So, what was more important to us is again also because it's set at night. Um, we it was important for us to we were like, well, let's let the nighttime setting. And the loneliness of this sort of Manhattan at nighttime be the thing that is our visual key. Let's withhold all those other visual cues. And again, let's let the language be the thing that tells the story and don't give the audience all of those visual signifiers. And how
0: early do you start talking to a lighting designer? Because I think, I mean, especially with this, but with any show.
1: It always varies. That's going to define so much of it. the lighting designer for the show is Ben Stanton, and as fate would have it, we were doing a show together immediately before that. So, and we're doing another show together it now. Yeah. So we just are in contact a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But usually, what because I do these little sketches, I'll often show stuff to the lighting designer before there's actually a grand plan and you know, so it's like, what, what is that? You know what I mean? It's, uh, and, uh, I I think Ben's just used to my, because my, my process is uh, uh, unusual and I do have to say a lot of, um, I think what I like about this, this sketch process I do is a lot of, it's just personal taste. You know, it's, I don't know if it's good or it's bad, but a lot of what interests me, uh, With thinking about scenery is again this thing that I sort of like it's I sort of think like, how much can you take away from the audience? But what that always means, you know, and let them fill in. Mm -hmm. But what that always means is then I feel like the lighting designer is having to work harder. And I'm I am always interested in if if there needs to be something that's transformational in the world. I like that the set. Mutate can mutate through the lighting. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm often like, I will bring these sketches to Ben or whoever it is and be like, here's how I think the lighting could work with this set. And you know, some designers like that, some don't, but it's, but, but it's just my, again, it's just my thinking is always like, Oh, maybe we don't need. It's so funny. I, I just saw a show a couple nights ago that had one big scenic shift you know, like one coup de teatro. and for me, it was intrusive. Like it kind of took me out of my connection with now you're thinking with about the with this, the characters and the story. Be- yeah, because my, my I just was like, oh. Um, and I think that's just my again. It's just like my taste is like I prefer it if the transformation is is more like oh my god, how did that happen? What's happening? Mm-hmm. And that those are always like lighting. Um, tricks or can be lighting oh, tricks, so I think that, that you f- find the lighting less intrusive than when there's a yeah because it's it's less intrusive because I mean now in, in pain of my belligerence we had moving pieces you know mm-hmm. that first scene shift we just had two people come out and roll that box that little box that was the bunk bunkhead away and it re- it sort of just revealed what had been sitting back there the mm-hmm. whole time which was this bedroom mm-hmm. um, so that was a shift you know um, but it wasn't all lighting. But I do think that the way the lighting was handled in that particular shift was interesting because, because it was slats, you were able to kind of see through the slats to the next thing. So there was a sense of like mystery and like, what is that? What's happening? What's Mm -hmm. coming next? Oh, oh, there's a bed there. Oh, she's, she's in the, oh, how did that, you know?
0: Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) Um, all right, cool. So you're talking about the lighting designer collaboration, but also you've worked with Trip Coleman and Hallie Pfeiffer a couple times. Mm-hmm. Are you, do you build a vocabulary with directors, writers? I mean, how much do you even talk to a, a, a playwright?
1: You know, the first show I did with Hallie was a play called um, I'm Gonna Pray for You So Hard, and it was at Atlantic's second stage. That I don't know if you've ever been there. It's like three stories underground. I,
0: I know the one. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and interestingly, now that I think about it, I, I never made this connection till now, but that was another show. We made an extremely real it's, it's it's two people sitting and talking at a table is basically the whole play. So, again, we made a very enclosed like kitchenette in an upper west side apartment. Um, you know, like old school, like haven't hasn't been. Uh, redecorated since, you know, the sixties. Um, and there was a lot, it just seemed like having a lot of the signifiers for that was very important. But the gimmick that we did is again, we left and right, we, we exposed, like we were very aware you were in a theater Mm -hmm. and then that particular theater has a big kind of loading dock door in the back wall which leads to a hallway. And then beyond the hallway is a corresponding big giant door that leads to their scene shop. So we opened up all of that and basically dressed like, you know, we did this like little kitchenette where, you know, you eat breakfast. Then we sort of dressed the whole like galley style kitchen that led back to that door to the hallway. But then in the scene shop, we put up just some black masking and put living room furniture in there Mm-hmm. And, like, a bookcase all the way. Yeah. So we made this, like, 70-foot deep. Because Even all, if
0: you're not going to use it. Well, it, it was all
1: set time. at night, so it was just, like, the f- illusion of, like, seeing, oh. like, you know, a lamp on a table next to a chair, but, like, 60 feet away from you. But yeah. the gag of that show is that there's a little coda at the end, like a 20-minute scene where you see the same character years later on the set of the play she wrote about that night. So we turned on all the work lights for that, and it, basically we exposed the theater. And we expo- we tur- opened up the masking, and you saw that it was a scene shop sure, back there. Sure. So you, ex- whatever, we exposed the theatrical <laughs> illusion. But I- in working on that, I came to them with such a fully baked idea. Hallie and I didn't really have a lot of pre-production time, but we got to know each other in, just in making the thing and, you know, and liking each other. And Trip is very, uh, um, you know... He's, uh, what's the word? He's very open to any ideas anybody has. He's eager to hear them and incorporate those ideas into. So at tech, you know, I just was yammering a lot, and because of that, I got to know Hallie, and you know, it was like pitching ideas about uh, the scene, the you know, the, the play itself and stuff. So by the time then we went to do our second play, which was her uh, adaptation of The Three Sisters called Moscow, 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 um, you know, by then we did sort of have a common, you know, we just were friends, you know, mm-hmm. when we had a vocabulary and I've worked with Triple a lot. So, you know, he's very alive to my eccentricities and my peculiarities and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. you know, sometimes he'll like roll his eyes and be like, oh yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what you want to do. Yeah. What um,
0: do you? What are? Your, what are those things for you? Like the things that that uh, a director
1: or a writer would be like? Oh yeah, Mark. Of course you want to do that. Um, the thing that's at the top of my head, or the thing I think I was thinking of when I said that is, we're, we're about to mount Moscow, 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 Moscow again. You have to uh, say it all of them it. every time. Well, <laughs> I, I, the other way to say it is Moscow times six, which just doesn't seem right to me. Um, uh, we did it. T- 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 two years ago uh, at Williamstown um, on their Nikos stage. And, you know, Williamstown doesn't, it's, it's a little kamikaze. It's, you know, you, it behooves you to just use the theater and not try to hide the theater. So that for not even aesthetic reasons, <laughs> we we're like, okay, we're just going to see the whole theater. But the Nikos, if you, if you see the whole thing, it's, it's huge. Um, So in moving it to MCC, where it's going to be now, it's their small, their new black box space. Mm -hmm. And we've decided to do it, you know, traverse style or like tennis court style. So like, you know, audience on either side. But it makes the acting areas probably like a tenth of what we had at Williamstown and a lot of the same actors. Um, And actually tomorrow is my first, I have to, it's their first day of staging. So I'm going to spend the first few days with them just seeing how to navigate this much, much, much smaller space. But the thing I have been saying to Trip through this whole, and he's used to me saying on other productions, is I always believe that, like, out of... If if you present an a physical obstacle, you're immediately creating a tension between the performer and the space they are in. And if you're clever about it, those obstacles create a kind of tension, and that tension can serve the play. Um, the thing you have to guard against is when those obstacles are creating a sense of tension in the performer. You know, and it the, so you have to make sure that it's serving the character, it's the right kind of tension, and that it's not a detriment to the character. Um, and, and it can be a very fine line. And like I said, taking this play where we've had a, a group of actors who were used to, like, you know, the, the Nico stage is, like, 60 feet wide, and we used 40 feet of depth, but then we had this, like, big felt curtain that we opened up, and there was another 40 feet of depth. So, I mean, they had, you know, and this is it's really packed in. It's like, now we're in a space that's, like, you know, 14 by 30 or something. Huh. Um, uh, and I'm sort of suggesting, like, a whole kind of obstacle course of furniture for this time around which we didn't do last time because the space was so big it wouldn't have made sense but I was like well since the space is so confined why don't we want to set up all this uh, sort of weird folding furniture that almost to the point of tripping over it Yeah. Um, and, and because uh, you, if, if you remember back to you know, like when you last time you saw The Three Sisters you know all I don't know, 12 characters end up in that same drawing room at some point Mm -hmm. in the first two uh, acts. Uh, And what the way Chekhov wrote it, you know, it's you're you are supposed to get a sense of what is in some ways this room that you can imagine was very lovely and inviting and gracious when their mother was alive, and they were having big parties, and it was a place you wanted to come. And there are even characters who say, "Oh, I dream about living in a room like this with beautiful, flowing curtains and flowers." And but there's also this thing of now it has gone to seed, and they, it's not at the top of the play. It is not the environment it once was. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to see if tomorrow. Let you know how it goes, <laughs> but tomorrow yeah. is my day <laughs> to see if if these obstacles create the right kind of sense of tension of the event. But I always, like, whenever I'm talking about props with any director, I'm always eager to find the thing that inhibits the flow when I think that is interesting or makes sense. And there's some people that are, like, that's the opposite of the way you would work. You know, for a lot of people, it would, like, you always want there to be a sense of a flow and and you know i've done those plays too but i'm just interested when the performer has to come across something that's has to be navigated because there's there's a, there's a, yeah. there, there can be a sort of electricity there what, with the ta- performer and space yeah talk to me about that
0: tension though cuz i'm just curious more specifically like obviously this one is an obstacle course so you're you're talking physically they have to get around it and that is the tension is that is that like a comedic tension? Is that like in this the the
1: basically what Hallie what she has found in the Three Sisters that I think is kind of genius is this very 2019 thing of each character in their own way has their own pathology and their own self-obsession where they really want to communicate to everybody else what their issues are, but no one is listening to anybody else. And I think she's really, you know, she's using a contemporary uh, sort of millennial speak as kind of the gag to tell that story. But the deeper resonance I think she has found within that gag is that desire to present oneself and to be heard and to state one's point of view, but without having the maturity or humanity to hear what the other person's problem is and what the other person is going through. And all of and when you break it three sisters down, when you break down what Chekhov wrote, that's essentially what he's writing, is that nobody is willing to have the empathy to take on the other person's pain. Um, and so this telling is, I think, hysterically funny, but it's that kind of humor that is growing out of pain. Yeah, it's a tragic. Um, fun. Well, and Trip said this, you know, really wise thing at the meet and greet the other day is that the play is hysterical, but it's he's the one who who reminded me that each character is carrying this great depth of pain, and it's it's the humor that comes out of. Um, their inability to be heard and their ability to even quite realize for themselves what they need in order to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I'm not going to spoil the end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But I think there is a kind of, it's like Hallie has found a bit of, I think the three sisters in Chekhov actually are do not find that redemption and that's the tragedy and I think in our production maybe they do. Mm. So maybe there's hope hmm. for us in 2019. Yeah, sure. I like that. But so
0: in in the physicalization of that, that empathy block or that, you know, do you find that the elements that you're putting in, the furniture, the obstacle course, it's a, it's a one-to-one with that metaphor? Or is this operating on
1: a different... I, I think when I did the show at Williamstown, you know, it just was a struggle to get. No, I should I'm not denigrating Williamstown. Edit that part out. That sounds horrible. <laughs> um, doing. <laughs> it's just when I did the show at Williamstown, you know, the struggle was just to get everything up on stage that we needed to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I sat in rehearsals and learned the play better, what the cast was bringing to it was sort of a surprise to me because they really the style of acting they brought to you know, they cranked it. I, I don't know nothing is above a hundred percent, so I don't want to be one of those people who says hundred and ten percent. but get they, what they, happened, they cranked yeah. it to a hundred percent. yeah um, it was so the, the scale of uh, manic energy that these neurotic people displayed like the actors had the bravery. So it was sort of like a madhouse. Um, And I was... when. So when I knew I was going to do it again, I thought, well, what can I bring to this that rises to that level? And I think this thing that I'm saying about all of these props littered about that are sort of in their way, you know, like a lot of it will be things that are incongruous to really being in a drawing room. You know, and one, I don't know if this will still work. It might not. But one of the things we had in Williamstown was we had a bunch of children's toys lying around just because I was like, you know, this is where they hung out when they were kids. And I just thought it would be fun to have a sense of the children that they were. And they're still acting like those. You know, they never they, they haven't leave they, this room. Yeah, really. they've, they've, they've not grown up. But they haven't left the room. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's their that's their drama and that's their tragedy. Um, but obviously, in that, there's a lot of humor. So one of the props that we just happened to like throw on stage was a tricycle and one of the actors found this really great thing of like being an adult man but riding a little kid's tricycle around the room well in our new like smaller space he'll bump into the audience now (laughs) well I'm still like let's well he'll fall off the stage because it's on a platform (laughs) Um, but I was like well let's still get a tricycle and see if that makes sense but you know it's that next to Oh, I don't know, like you know, the card table where they're going to play cards later. Like we're still going to have a card table, and that makes sense for the room. Um, but this tricycle doesn't. And you know, like one of the other things that we found is like I had a pile of um, uh, what do you call it? A jigsaw puzzle. Um, and it was a the image on the puzzle was St. Basil's in Red Square of Moscow. <laughs> um, but it's like you know, we made it so that they only put around the edges, and they didn't have like the energy. To really do the whole puzzle, even though it's probably been sitting there for 10 years. Yeah. But then there was this great moment, and but we had this mountain of Jigsaw puzzle pieces. And in the old production, we found this moment where one of the characters in a fit of pique like kicked the puzzle pieces and they went all over the room. And so again, I was like, well, are we still gonna do that? Even though it's this much smaller space? Because you're gonna have to like, everyone's gonna have to walk over. But for me, I think maybe they're in the manic energy. What am I trying to say? There's something maybe more fantastic about this manic energy with all of these things that are in their way, stuff that shouldn't be there, that they just don't have the energy to clean up,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to just a big, giant, empty room where there's all this manic energy. And it's, we'll, uh, you know, we'll discover. It's just props, so it's easy to cut something. Do you gravitate towards pieces where you can
0: sort of use that philosophy? Well,
1: when you do what I do, the pieces gravitate to you. Sure. So I don't really have a say in what I do. The, the pieces find me.
0: Do you think you have a brand then of, not, I hate the word brand, like that implies it's so corporate, but, but a sort of yeah, identity that, or that, a sort of like,
1: that was so social media. Oven.
0: A, a, a uh, well, like what's your signature? Uh, do you think that Makes you Mark Wenlin and and versus I can't whoever the other hacks are that, that do
1: this I can't <laughs> verbalize it I um you do get pigeonholed huh. so that if you do a certain kind of thing early on you're the guy that does that certain kind of thing so you know the dream when you're young is to try and do as many different kinds of things as possible so that you can show that you can do different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to do all different kinds of things. Um, you know, mm-hmm. lately, my work has been sort of in this more like contemporary milieu, mm-hmm. sort of abstract plays uh, set in contemporary settings. Um, well, you're throwing realism under the
0: bus earlier, so you know.
1: But you know what? When you get that, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the last time and I'm, I'm blanking like actually Hallie's first play was s- super real the only thing that was abstract at all about it was that we figured out a way by just turning on the work lights mm-hmm. to expose the theatrical convention but that was really real and there was something really it's wrecking, really but it's still realism well it was there was something really fu- the, the character uh, uh, who played um, the, it was a, a daughter and father scene and the father was supposed to be sort of a New York author and I want to say playwright because we did that fun work of like making fake playbills that we had up and like making fake reviews that he had framed. And like we did a a fake letter from uh, I guess the White House that like congratulating him on his Pulitzer like you know, and like getting that deep into it. You wouldn't do on an abstract set, but it was really satisfying. I had a really good time. So I'm not denigrating that vocabulary (laughs) at all. It's really satisfying when it's the right play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I am denigrating that phenomenon of clapping when the curtain goes up.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So you don't want anyone to clap for your sets? No. Clap for the actors. Yeah. Don't clap for the set. Big thanks to Mark Wendland for talking to us, and be sure to check out Moscow, 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 Moscow at MCC later this year. I think I got that right.